Brothers and sisters, let's hear the word of God together, our living hope. And the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord God, we do pray, as always, that you fill our hearts with your spirit so that we might be, have the illumination we need in order to understand this word, to be transformed by it now and forevermore, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We are continuing on in our series on the Apostles' Creed, and we might be able to get the Apostles' Creed up here so that we can state it together. Mark, can we get the Apostles' Creed up? Let's uh, state that which we believe together. Brothers and sisters, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker in heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Again, we recite the Apostles' Creed in part because it's a wonderful summary of the essentials of the gospel. The essentials, what do I mean by that? Not that, there are, uh, that we have to understand each and every one of them in depth, but these are the things in which we, the church has early on discern, discerned are, are key in the gospel message. And so here today we are talking about the idea that we believe in the communion of saints. If you spend any time with me at all as a pastor or as a church leader, any significant amount of time, I'm fairly confident that you will be disappointed. Uh, my guess is that unless we have a very surfacey relationship, if we spend any time in a committee or in studies or if you uh, discern some of the, my comings and goings, in the end, uh, you will be surprised and shocked and disappointed in some of the ways in which I act and think. If you spend any time with any of the marvelous, tremendous Christians that are in this room, if you spend any time studying the scriptures with them, if you spend any time serving and ministering alongside of them, I am confident that you will find yourself surprised and discouraged at spots at the evidence of sin in their lives and the brokenness that is around them. I believe this for two reasons. One is I have experienced this my entire Christian life. For the past 35 years, I have been involved in church ministry, 
And for the past 35 years, I personally have been frustrated by the brokenness and the sin of the church. And I've heard consistently from people how surprised they are and how annoyed they are over the, over the sin and the brokenness in the church. Secondly, I believe that that will be your experience as well because that's what the Bible says. That's how the Bible describes the reality of the church. Now we have a great picture of this when we come to the Apostles' Creed, where we state, I believe in the communion of saints. Now, I believe in the communion of saints. In other words, out of the eight things in which the church thought would be a good summary of the gospel message, a summary of, of what the Bible teaches, here we've got all of these pages, how do we break it into eight good statements? One statement is, one of eight is, I believe in the communion of saints. It's that important to the church that they affirm that they believe in the communion of saints. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, we once again have to make sure we got our language right. Whenever we're in church and we talk about communion, we're usually talking about uh, the Lord's Supper, celebrating that communion together where we have the table before us and we take the body and the bread. And it might be tempting to think that what we're saying is that I believe that the saints participate in communion together. That's not what we're talking about. Communion is, again, just another fancy word. It's a biblical word. It's a fancy word to articulate that gathering together, the coming together, the, the, the union of God's people. So what we're saying is that we believe that God has brought the saints together in some fashion. Now, it's not just in this fashion where we have everybody in the room together. That's fine. I like going to athletic events, uh, going to live events and stuff like that where you're one of the crowd and the crowd is going crazy and you're high-fiving a bunch of people that you don't even know and, and you know, those kind of things. I like that feeling of gathering together, being tight with people and, and that kind of excitement along those lines. That's not what we mean when we say that we believe in the communion of saints. It's not just the gathering together. It's not just being in the physical proximity. When, if this truly is the gathering of the saints, the communion of saints, it's not because we are all existing in the same room. Communion has that idea, has the impl implications of, of not just being together, but a, an interweaving of our lives, uh, an, a, a, an intimacy that connects. There is something spiritual that God does so when we state that we believe in the communion of saints, we're talking about we believe that God in his redemption so bonds us together so that we're not just all in the same room together, singing together or worshiping together, but that there's something that God does here in this room to join the saints together in some intimate way, some unacknowledged way that most of us don't really appreciate. That's what we're talking about when we say that I believe in the intimacy, the, the communion of saints, that, that interlocking that God himself does. Now, we believe in the interlocking of the saints. Once again, just to clarify a little bit, if you have a Catholic background or Catholic friends or even, even the way our, our uh, uh, media talks about it, et cetera. Immediately, you might think of the saints in terms of those holy of holy Christians that have gone beforehand. So St. Anselm or St. Francis or Mother Teresa or something like that. So you've got the regular believers, and then we've got those super saints. Those are above and beyond everybody else. So are we talking about that we believe in an intimacy of the connectedness of that 
top-tier Christian group. No, that's not what we're saying. The word saints, again, is a biblical word that is used by Paul and the other biblical writers to define every single Christian. If you are a Christian in the biblical sense, you are a saint. Now, we immediately associate moral uh, perfection or righteousness or something like that to the word saint, and so you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm no saint. In God's eyes, that's exactly what you are. A saint is one who has been sanctified. That's where the word comes from. That is, in the process of being sanctified, in the process of being changed and transformed, and that's the case for every believer in this room, if you know it and if you experience it or not, because it's the work of the Holy Spirit in you that is doing that. And so when we say that I believe in the communion of saints, what we're saying is built into the biblical message, built into the very claw of what God is doing in this world, is that he is joining together in this mystical, spiritual way a community, a gathering of people who are all set apart, who are all being sanctified by his word. That's what it means when we say that we belong to the communion of saints. And we get a beautiful picture of it in Acts chapter 2, the text that I just read. Acts chapter 2, verse 47, if you want to flip to that for a second, you have a, a, a picture here of the church at its best. What is the church when it's at its best? This is immediately following the Pentecost experience. This is in the very, very early days of the church, if you know your biblical history here. And they, the, the early church believers, the early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. They devoted themselves. I love the choice of that word. They devoted themselves because that, that implies the passion, the dedication, the earnest, steadfast pursuit. This is not something that they kind of submit to, or this is not something that they listen to. This is not something that they bother reading. This is something that they have devoted themselves to. We rarely, we don't use that word very much anymore, and it's a great word to capture what the church is to be about. Devoted themselves to what? They've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what is the apostles' teaching? Luckily, we have in the scriptures itself, Jesus saying to the disciples, he says, in time after I die and go to be with my father, I will send the Holy Spirit back and he will teach you everything that I have said. And so the reality is that the devoted to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' teaching that we are devoted ourselves to is the Bible itself, the very Word of God. This is what we are talking about when we say that we are devoted to the apostles' teaching. And again, how, what does it look like to be devoted, to be passionate, to be steadfastly pursuing the apostles' teaching? the word of God, and to the fellowship. They were devoted not to the fellowship, not to fellowship together, but they were devoted to the fellowship. They are devoted to this gathering. There is something about not just each and every one of us, but rather the collection of us together. They are devoted to that and to the breaking of bread. 
Now, the breaking of bread could mean that they were devoted to the fact that they were fellowshipping together by eating together in each other's homes and stuff like that. That's possible, but usually the language in the scriptures when they talk about breaking the bread, that's code for worship. So they, because that's one element of the, the communion service there, that does have a reflection actually on the communion service. So what we're saying there is that the apostles, that the early church was devoted to learning the scriptures, devoted to one another as this community, and devoted to worship together. And then of course, finally, they're devoted to the word. The, sorry, they're devoted to prayer. They're devoted to giving their lives to the Lord in prayer. Who? wouldn't want to join a church like that. Think about that. That is beautiful. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a church that is devoted, earnestly pursuing all of those things? But that's not the only thing the Bible describes about the church. The Bible talks more so about the church than just this one particular line. How many of you have had a conversation with somebody that has run something along the lines of, I love Jesus, it's just the church I can't stand. Or I'm committed to Jesus, but the institutional church is a bunch of hypocrites and I'll have nothing to do with it. Or you know somebody that has been so wounded, so hurt, by the leadership of the church or by individuals in the church or something along those lines that they say, I'm never going back to that place. I'm never going back to church. I can worship all by myself in my little closet or I can worship while I'm up on the mountain by myself or playing golf or playing cards or that they'll have nothing to do with the institutional church because it's such a hypocritical, sinful mess. Now, if you're like me, it's kind of hard not to be somewhat sympathetic to that position. I feel badly for those people who have had that experience. I feel badly when I have had that experience and when I have thought that exact way. But that thinking, biblically, is just dead wrong. And every time you're tempted to think like that, every time you're, th- you're tempted to be overwhelmed by the sin and the brokenness that you find in this fellowship right here, you need to reorient yourself theologically, biblically. You need to think about what is happening around here when you are highly disappointed in me. And I don't mean just when I stub my toe and swear or something like that. I mean when I do something that is abysmal and wicked in your eyes. When the session at this church makes foolish and unwise choices. When we together as a community or as a culture uh, in this cult, the culture of this body right here, act in ways that are just horrifying in your sight and you're tempted to think that's just it, you need to reorient yourself and think biblically and theologically. Because what do we know about the church? Let me see if I can lay this out 
three small steps that I want you to hold on to whenever you're tempted to think like this. And please, if you've never been frustrated with the church, if you've never thought that the church has fallen flat on its face, if you've never been upset with me or with Doug before that or with any of the other, Jerry, any of the other stuff, if you've never, I don't know what you're doing here. Yeah, you know, this is a, so, if you have been tempted ever in your life to sit and think, that place is so broken, I don't know if I can associate with it. Check yourself with these three ideas. Biblically, what do we know? The church is created by God and loved by God. This church, this gathering right here, is created by God and loved by God. This is one of the problems that we have a little bit with the absolutely true statement, and you'll never hear me not emphasize it, that on the cross, Jesus Christ died for your sin, died to set you free, died to relieve you of the guilt and the burden of the sin that weighs you down, and all those yous in there are singular. I mean you, and you, and you. That's what Jesus has done for every one of us as an individual. And we focus upon that, and we absolutely have to focus upon that, and I will never stop preaching that, because that is the scripture. That is the word of God. But that's not the only word of God. We tend to think that our salvation, our personal experience at the cross is the crux of what we envision, and then there are some side benefits that come along, and the church is one of those. You know, it's like an afterthought that, oh, not only am I freed from my sin, but I also get to gather with other people and worship God. We, You know, that, that, that's kind of, the, the, church is a, the church is no afterthought. You look at the scriptures, how the scriptures talk about the cross, the scriptures overwhelmingly talk about the cross, that Christ died for his people, that Christ died for his church, that Christ died for us. That doesn't stop the belief that Christ died for every one of us as individuals. That's absolutely true, too. But Christ died for us. This is what our Lord went to the cross for. This is what he loved us so much for. Us, right here, anytime you get ready to throw up your hands and walk away from the brokenness and the sinfulness and the failures of me or the session or the people you're sitting with, you've got to remember that we were created and loved by God. Secondly, the church is a sinful wreck because we all are a sinful wreck. We are the vilest of sinners. And this is a, a, just a reorientation for you individually in addition to us collectively. Individually, so many of us have convinced ourselves, well, we know we're not perfect. Here's the standard. And we know we're not this, but we're kind of this. We're, we're close enough. And what does Jesus do on the cross? He bumps us over the finish line. That's ridiculous. Anybody that has taken a second to realize the guilt and the, and the depth of their own sin realizes that apart from Jesus Christ, we are the vilest of sinners. The scriptures say that we are dead spiritually. We are dead apart from Jesus Christ. Now, with the salvation of Christ, the salvation that comes to us through the cross of our Lord, what happens? Yes, we are freed of the guilt and, uh, and of the sin, 
But we do not become perfect. That sinful remnant remains upon us, holds us, and shows itself in every aspect that we do, particularly when we get together as a body. So, of course, the leadership of this church is going to fail. Of course, the people you're sitting next to you are going to fail, and we're going to do so in spectacular ways. And you should never be surprised. The fact that you're shocked, the fact that you're surprised, horrified, yes, we should be horrified at our sin and how it shows itself in the foolish actions that we make as a community, as well as the foolish actions that take place in our own hearts. We should be frustrated by that. We should be horrified at it. We should be going to the Lord in confession, but we should never be surprised. That's what sin is. Thirdly, the church is a redeemed body. It's a redeemed group of believers. That means that right here, present with us right now, are all those who have experienced the essence of the gospel, which is what? Grace. I want to challenge you. Work through this with me for a little bit. We don't have a lot of time to explore it, but I want you to see if you can pick it up. Anytime you're frustrated by the sinfulness of this church or of any church, what you're doing is you're sliding into a works righteousness mentality. You're saying, these people are all Christians. They should be better than this. They shouldn't be sinning like this. They shouldn't be making these foolish decisions. They shouldn't be acting in ways that are so contrary to the gospel. Why? Because they're supposed to be, they're Christians. They're supposed to be better than this. That is exactly the opposite of grace. Grace comes to us because we're not better than that. Because that's exactly who we are. And not just once does grace come not just to make you a believer and bring you into this body, but every second you are a part of this body, every time you get disappointed with the sinfulness of this church is a great opportunity to sit there anew and to see the grace of God. Can you believe the stupid thing they did and yet God still loves them? Can you believe the sinfulness of those actions, and yet God still loves them. Grace is still present. Grace still dominates. Now, are we changed and transformed? Should there be a moral transformation of our lives? Absolutely there is. I will tell you that 35 years ago when I became a Christian, I was a vile sinner. Now, I'm a vile sinner, but less so because the Holy Spirit has been working in my life. But it's not that I went from here to here. It's that I've gone from here to here. And the longer I live, and you can test this by the brothers and sisters we know that are older in the faith. Okay, as they get older in the faith, do they get better? Yeah, I think that's the case. Have they attained perfection? Never that I've seen. And we bring that brokenness to the church community together. It is an opportunity every time you're surprised 
by the sin that is present here, I beg you to stop anew and to think to myself, think to yourself, Henry, think to yourself, no, this is the body that God has created. This is the body, this institutional body is the body that God has brought and loved. This is the institutional body that is racked with sin that I know so well in my own life. Of course I'm going to see it in yours. And this is the body where God's grace is exhibited every minute of every day. And if we hold on to those truths, what does the church look like at its best? Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. Wouldn't it be something if every time you came to worship, awe came upon you because of the love of God for this body, the depth of our sin, and the power of God's redeeming grace in the midst. And awe came upon every soul, and wonders and signs were being done. Wonders and signs were being done. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Dear Lord in heaven, how we ask and plead that you would do exactly that in our own lives. Add to our number daily, not because we want this church to be bigger, but because we want the expression of your kingdom here to be even more powerful. As we are surrounded by the brokenness of our sin, as we live consistently the brokenness of our sin, so we want to experience more and more that forgiveness, that grace that, it, that is ours in Jesus Christ. Because of his death and his sacrifice, we pray, amen.